a fire on the mountain burning out of control. The sky is set ablaze in all its red and gold. The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, and I'm joined in this impeachment section by Chris Ryan, the unimpeachable, short-sleeved wearing, Nike sport shoe kind of guy. Welcome it's to the latest. I'm an Under Armour guy. Here he is. He's a he's the re, he's the real deal. Well, folks, it's finally happened. The Democrats somehow have gotten themselves together, gotten themselves on board when Nancy Pelosi decided enough is enough. And the Democrats have now launched an impeachment inquiry into the conduct of the great orange Cheeto himself, Donald Trump. And Donald This one is a really interesting one because what put the Dems over the edge is both a combination of Donald's own admissions, Rudy Rudy Giuliani, Rudy Tutti Giuliani's own admissions, Rudy Tutti, that's me, Rudy Tutti Giuliani, his own admissions about what he's been up to, and now we have the words themselves. We have a transcript of a telephone call, a single telephone call, in uh, late July or August of this year between uh, Donald uh, Trumpolfinsky and Viktor Zelensky from Ukraine, with the same accent as Mr. Putin. You yeah, hardly, can, yeah. hardly can tell, tell apart Zelensky and Putin because they both sound like this, because Ukraine used to be, and sometimes, you know, is thought to be by Russia, part of Russia, and now I'm Putin, and frankly... What I want is Ukraine to be part of Russia because uh, Ukraine should be part of Russia. I'm trying to take all Ukraine over. But in telephone Kolsky between Zelensky and Donald Trump Olfinsky, Donald Trump Olfinsky went out on a bit of a bender. He apparently, according to his words as transcribed, and reports to a whistleblower by a dozen White House aides who were present at the phone call basically asked Zelensky for a favor. And the favor was, you know, kind of like this. Well, Mr. Zelensky, I held back $400 million of aid that Congress says I ought to give to you, and I've held it back. He didn't exactly say that, but he talked about the economy of Ukraine and how great it could be and what a good friend the United States could be. And then he asked Zelensky to help him make sure that the Ukrainian prosecutors investigated Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden, because Joe Biden has been bragging about stopping the investigation that had been ongoing. And boy, is that a terrible thing. So what what the clear import of the words and they're pretty inescapable are that although Trump then came out and said, there's no quid pro quo, no quid pro quo. 
It's amazing that he knows Latin, by the way. How, how does he know Latin? Where does that come from? In an otherwise complete ignoramus, to know Latin, maybe he doesn't even know what it means, but somebody told him to say. He's, been, he's no, been to court a lot. No quid pro quo. He's, he's, been, <laughs> he's, he's spent a lot of time in court over the years. He's spent a lot of time in court. Anyway, he came out and he said, there's no quid pro quo. Um, and then his defense he moved from, well, didn't happen to it did happen to, so what if it happened? Anyway, so there's the transcript. And then on Thursday, the whistleblower complaint, which kicked this whole thing off, was released. It's unclassified in terms of the letter. It's in whistleblower's complaint. I have read that whistleblower's complaint. It details in what must be to the Trump and Trump Trumpeters, alarmingly detailed accounts of what happened in the phone call, why it jeopardized national security, why it was wrong, and why the whistleblower was bringing it forward. And also the steps that the Trump administration took to cover up what took place, which and, is one of the more damning parts of and, it. And that's probably, it may and be. And not just this, but additional phone calls as well. That's where right. They class, would classify the calls and place them into a server, um, and the information uh, would be uh, basically scrubbed, pushed aside and scrubbed. Scrubbed and moved to a different right. private server. Which sounds, Which sounds reminiscent awful. of something. I can't remember <laughs> what it Rosemary was. Woods and those <laughs> eight-minute gap. And yeah. where are the transcripts? Well, they don't exist on the White House server. So what the I whistle- was thinking more of Hillary Clinton's oh, yeah, private yeah, yeah. server. But, so yeah. the, the whistleblower complaint details that the White House lawyers directed uh, that the transcripts of these calls be removed from the server that they were supposed to be on and moved away to be locked up, hidden away on another, on a different server. And then the director of the acting director of national intelligence, Mr. McGuire, came before Congress and said that the whistleblower is not a hack, is not a traitor, is not doing anything unpatriotic, uh, but was following the law to the letter in bringing forward this whistleblower complaint because of a genuine concern that national security had been imperiled, that the law had been broken, and the law required that the chiefs, the chairs of the Intelligence Committee in the Senate and the House be notified. I think another important piece, and I think this is on page three, was how the Ukraine interpreted um, what was taking place and that it was basically that if um, the Biden investigation and also the president uh, mentioned a complaint in regards to 2016 election, if those were to be investigated, perhaps the United States and Ukraine would be back to the same type of relationship they were before. And that was the interpretation that was placed on the Ukraine government website. Um, and that, to me, indicates what they were thinking, that we do this and we will get back to a situation where the United States and the Ukraine are close allies. There had been and has been strong tension. A lot of individuals feel it's due to the president's relationship with Vladimir Putin. Um, there has been strong tension that has existed between the United States and Ukraine, including the withholding of this $400 uh, million in appropriated defense funds, the funds were allocated. And then during the course of the conversation, 
the uh, President Zelensky mentions that the defense funds were were given and is, is thankful for that. And that's at what point Trump says and asks for the favor, initially mentioning the um, 2016 uh, election uh, it, and then moving on to um, Biden and Hunter Biden. And um, yeah, we're at a, we're at a place right now where um, the impeachment train is running strong, and you're even hearing. And again, we're not anywhere close to having the appropriate number of Republicans for conviction. But give Trump some time because he's already he's already he's already getting there. You know, he he was in a, uh, a breakfast uh, Thursday morning and um, mentioned treason, and that the individual is basically and individuals who reported to the whistleblower are basically spies and you know what we used to do in the old days when things were better to spies <laughs> and to folks <laughs> who committed treason uh, I, and so that's and that's I can would, be seen and it trump functions in this area where it's not like outright like this is the quid pro quo and it's straight there or where he's witness tampering and threatening but you can make the argument consistently that that is what he is doing here. With the, when you say those types of things about a whistleblower and about individuals that are testifying against you, calling them spies and, and say what happened to, used to happen to people, that's that's <laughs> mafia type talk. Hey. It's not like we're not. It's well, that guy's a spy. We're gonna whack him. <laughs> but it's it's, it's pretty, he's not that dumb. It's but pretty, he's close. It's pretty close. Well, he's got a lot of experience. I mean, let's remember, folks. He's been getting away with this kind of thing forever and ever and ever. It's been the modus operandi. He is basically a a gang leader. He's basically, there's a, you know, it's basically running a criminal enterprise in the White House. And that has now finally crossed the Rubicon for the Democrats. And uh, we now have 218 Democrats plus one independent who have come out supporting impeachment. What's very interesting was the uh, press report came out, and, and I don't know how much credibility it's, it can be given, so I'm not vouching for this. But um, somebody reported that, that, that folks in the Senate said, if the vote on impeachment were secret, 30 Republican senators. Yeah, former uh, Republican strategist Mike Murphy said that. Yeah, would be voting for but that's impeachment. The, that's, a big, that's a big if. It's a big if. It's not private. I understand. Uh, so but, it means nothing. But, you know, from where I sit in Ukraine, this is... Uh, this is uh, to be expected with, with, with Mr. Putin, friend of Donald Trump, Putinsky, never been good guy, never been friendly to Ukraine. Ukraine, USA had very good relation until Mr. Trump, Putinsky came in with friendship to Putin. And now he's in uh, deep kimchi, uh, which is, by the way, Korean for deep trouble. Deep trouble, deep kimchi, same kind of thing. But here in Ukraine, we think that, uh, you know, we were very clear. You want something, you want give something, we want get, we want take something. U.S. favor, we give favor. And bingo, everybody walk away happy. And maybe we reset relationship U.S.-Ukraine for betterment of everybody. But uh, now there's real trouble on horizon. So... Folks, this is like stay tuned. Two presidents have been impeached uh, in U.S. history. Mr. Nixon resigned. And what will happen to Donald Trump and his criminal enterprise 
in the White House. Stay tuned for more Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the Internet and podcast at Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. This show is just getting on the road. We'll be back with more Off the Record after this. Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the interwebs at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find all our shows archived for your binge listening pleasure. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes for all of those of you with fast thumbs and 21st century appetites. I am really pleased to have a very special guest on Off the Record, a friend of mine from the Wayback Machine, uh, a guy, a man of mystery and intrigue, of many talents and many enterprises, an author, an entrepreneur, a producer, a music lover, an all-around great guy. Stuart Shapiro, welcome to Off the Record. Thank you, Paul. Glad to be here. Love you as always and glad to be on you. Well, you know, you and I go back a little ways. Um, we met uh, through politics, and uh, you uh, helped me a lot uh, as a freshman congressman in Washington, D.C. You helped me reach out to my constituents. You helped me with town halls. You had all kinds of wonderful things uh, that I really found extraordinarily useful. And but more importantly than that, way back when, way back, so we're going to jump into the time machine. Back we go to the halcyon days of the 60s when our hair was darker and there was more of it, except you, you have a very good head of hair. And you were a music guy and a movie guy and a TV guy and... I, if I am not mistaken, you had something to do with the Woodstock Music and Arts Festival in 1969 in upstate New York. Am I, am I remembering this correctly? No, you are actually not remembering it correctly. Um, I, I was the Woodstock 99 Festival. I was one of the producers and produced the live internet um, 72 hour streaming broadcast uh, for Woodstock 99 and I, I worked on Woodstock 94 but I actually was in jail in Athens, Greece when uh, Woodstock uh, 69 was on <laughs> <laughs> back to the mystery of the old days yeah, so, which, so, I, yeah, <laughs> which so. I actually called D-A-Z-E Back in the old days. D-A-Z-E. So, so that's right. an interesting place to be. So what was jail like in Greece in 1969? What was, tell, me, tell us about that. Well, I had flirted with uh, psychedelics, as all of uh, my uh, generation may or may not have. And um, I was also somewhat of a macho uh, 
kind of person with psychedelics, and one of my dreams was that uh, I would arrive in a foreign country that I have never been in that was truly foreign and foreign language, and as quickly as possible get high on acid so that I could actually, you know, truly blow my mind apart. And um, it turned out that I, I, uh, I went too far, and... Uh, somehow uh, got recognized for being ludicrous and, and lewd or whatever it was, and uh, proceeded to become a specimen with the uh, Athens Greek department who had never really had experience with uh, hippies running around stoned on acid, and they um, felt I was a good specimen to, to, uh, to quantify. Well, there I was. I spent three days in uh, Athens, Greece, coming down. But um, it's, you know, it's part of the mystery. <laughs> man, oh man. That's like, uh, that's kind of a bad. I would have much preferred, I would have much preferred to be high on acid at Woodstock at what, 99. Yeah. I was in Europe for that whole year. Well, wait, I never got back in time. But wait a second, at least you were, you were dry, right? I mean, you were dry. You weren't being rained on, that's for sure. Yeah, that's yeah. true. So, so what was it, I mean... So there you are. You're 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 high on acid. You're in a foreign country. You've just been hauled off to the to the Greek who's gal. You don't. I presume you didn't speak Greek. No, of course no. not. No. And and they didn't speak probably too much English, right? I would assume also the English that I was speaking was probably not normal English, considering my condition. <laughs> considering your condition, you were probably talking about celestial celestial happenings, right? right. So what was the song? My condition of my condition was a rock and roll song. Like Plug, that. Plugged into the cosmic switchboard. There's Stuart. So was it was it a miserable hellhole? Was it okay? I mean, did they feed oh, you? You know, I mean, do you remember? Yeah, yeah, I remember quite a bit of it. Um, what one, you know, one of the defining, I, I didn't really expect it. I thought we were going to be talking rock and roll. I didn't realize we were going to get into Oh, no, we're going to we're going to get into rock but, and roll. Don't worry. But what but what one of the, you know, cosmic understandings of of uh, psychedelic tripping, particularly when you were young and youth, was really the the sense of a uh, of otherworldliness and the sense of, um, you know, what a, an immortal quantum uh, world that exists in parallel worlds, you know, we, and I would say that in that particular trip, um, it really um, brought me to a level of understanding that there was much more to the superficial life that we see around us and feel around us. And I took from that time, actually, a, a sense of comfort and um, strength throughout my whole life uh, that uh, there's more than what we see. And, and, you know, and if you can actually build that as part of your foundation growing up, you know, without the, the side effects, of course, um, I think it was really one of my uh, defining moments. And, and I've carried the strength that I... I believe in afterlife, or I believe in reincarnation, and re, you know, in precarnation, and and a lot of that I think came from the psychedelic experiences that I had uh, in those days. 
So you did not fancy yourself a hero of Greek mythology, but you uh, no. you uh, took th- you took three you took three days to reco- recover from your cosmic experience, and uh, and I, I I'm betting I'm bet you know since I'm always interested in food, I bet they didn't serve you uh, good moussaka. That I don't remember. Uh-huh. That I don't remember. That I don't remember. What I, I have no memory of what 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 they were feeding. No, me no catering in the nineteen sixty nine Greek dry tank. So, I do remember this. I have this one memory though that I was sort of like a caged animal, and that they were uh, they were constantly filing by and kind of like staring at me like mm-hmm. I was a specimen. Yeah, that I that I sort of remember. Yeah, well, you know, and 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 you survived, and you eventually came back to the United States, and then you then you 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 know you you moved on from from psychedelics to music to rock and roll. So yeah, I mean, what, what happened? happened was well. So when I was growing up, I grew up in the Berkshires in Massachusetts, and as a kid, I was a an usher at Tanglewood. In the old days of uh, Leonard Bernstein and Arthur Fiedler, we're, in, we're talking in the 50s then. And then in the, in the 50s, next to Tanglewood in the Berkshires in Lenox, Mass., there was a very well-known uh, music venue called the Berkshire Music Barn, which was the summer residence of the modern jazz quartet. Mm-hmm. Ornette Coleman, Dave Brubeck, yeah. all of the great uh, jazz uh, um, masters. Were, were there, and I grew up there. And then what happened was that place went out of business, and I, as part of being, I guess, that was my early days of, of as a child, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur of some nature. I ended up, uh, in my senior year in college when I came back, um, making a deal because the Berkshire Music Barn had uh, gone dark, and I built an outdoor stage there and started the first set of uh, outdoor um, folk and rock and roll concerts in 1970, and I opened up that uh, venue with uh, with um, uh, uh, God. We had Doug Delaney and Bonnie and uh, Paul Butterfield and James Taylor and BB King and Ike and Tina Turner uh, and uh, Arlo Guthrie was actually the first act, and you know that was the beginning of my. Uh, music entrepreneurial career. And, and Arlo Guthrie at the time, the son of the famous Woody Guthrie, had just released a record called Alice's Restaurant. Right. Right. He did. And it was, yeah. And, and it was and about actually, his experiences in, uh, in Massachusetts. And actually, my roommate that summer was Alice. I lived in Alice's house, uh, the actual real Alice, Alice Brock. Ah. Um, I was her roommate that summer. And then that was also the summer where James Taylor, who was my last show there, had uh, his famous uh, breakout record, uh, um, you know, which mentioned Woodstock, uh, which mentioned Stockbridge. And, and, right, and, right, 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 right. Yeah. So you were in, you're in the mix. I mean, you're the guy who brought them, who gave them a stage, literally gave them the stage to play on. Yeah. That, so, and how long, how long did that gig last? That was just that summer. Um, I had the beginning of my uh, rain karma, um, yeah. and uh, a number of shows were rained out, except for the James Taylor show, which was a huge success. But uh, it wasn't that successful. And then I moved on, moved to Boston, and then 
sort of fluttered around, but slowly um, kind of sort of wandered in and out of different productions and, and uh, actually finally found that I was best suited to be in the film business uh, in the 19, like around 1974, 75. Right. So I'm just thinking, while you're doing that, I had spent, uh, let's see, 69, 70, I was still in college. I got out of college in 72. I headed to New York and had eight careers in show business between 72 and 75. I was actually doing a, a somewhat similar thing. In 1973, I ended up putting together a New American Theater Festival with the Ensemble Studio Theater up in Jeffersonville, Vermont, and then headed to New York in 19. 19- 73 and 4 and was in the film business, was in some films, was doing some radio, playing music in clubs, uh, putting together uh, a film, working for a filmmaker. By 1975, I decided that I better have something to fall back on. And I was headed to Boston, to Boston College, to go to law school. And you were doing films in Boston. And uh, so what, what, were, what were the first kinds of things you were doing in the film business? Uh, well, the first film, uh, well, I, I started my company called International Harmony in uh, late 1975. And I started as an independent film distributor. So in those days, uh, the, an independent film distributor really was sort of like a quasi-producer and distributor. And uh, I started out my first film that I um, that I was sort of uh, a producer, executive producer. It was a film called Tunnel Vision, and Tunnel Vision was uh, starred, uh, sort of starred Chevy Chase and Howard Hessman and Lorraine Newman. It was directed uh, by Neil Israel, and Neil Israel was actually working in the. Uh, in the basement as a, as a sort of film, somewhat of a filmmaker when Saturday Night Live first went on. So Tunnel Vision was this sort of uh, segment-oriented, like Kentucky Fried movie. Uh, it was basically television in the future, um, which was at that time, I think uh, 1986 was the way it was perceived as. But it was also dirty television. And there was uh, the whole premise of it is that, that that network, the Tunnel Vision Network, was uh, being suspended by Congress because it was too over the top and too dirty. Sound familiar? Sound familiar. Uh, here, here we are, 40 years. So that was my first film. And then from there, um, I worked with Neil Young, um, with uh, a friend of mine, Jeff Franklin, who was Neil Young's uh, uh, agent. He had a company called ATI and had a, um, was, was the leading rock and roll talent agent. And Neil had been working on Rust Never Sleeps but didn't, hadn't finished it. And um, I, I didn't say I convinced Neil, but I gave Neil the opportunity to finish it with a real bona fide film distribution pattern. So we released that I did Jimmy Plays Berkeley. I did a film called Reggae Sunsplash with Bob Marley and Peter Tosh and Third World. Um, a film called Day the Music Died. Um, I helped uh, finish the Sex Pistols film DOA, which was uh, done by Lech Kowalski, and uh, released that. And then, you know, I, I sort of segued. What was happening was 
I segued in the 70s. Most of all our music films really did business not before 10 o'clock at night. So the, the, the movies did business at 10 and 12 o'clock. And so the midnight movie phenomenon, which is always sort of partially viewed as, um, as uh, uh, you know, Rocky Horror Picture Show, right. was really a whole subculture of rock and roll and horror films. Right. That uh, right, right. that played. And so we were playing in cities after cities with all these films. And I, I sort of became like the midnight movie maven distributor uh, of independent films. And most of them were rock and roll films for the most part. A lot of them mine. And, and then I also had the, the uh, you know, licensed a bunch of other films like, you know, Song Remains the Same, which was an infamous late night movie. So that that whole catalog and that whole series was the genesis of me starting uh, Nightflight in, in 1981. So, actually, so, yeah. So, folks, we're talking with the Midnight Music Maven, entrepreneur, impresario, uh, psychedelic king of the jails of <laughs> Athens, Greece, Stuart Shapiro, right. here right, on Paul. Off the Record with Paul Hodes. We're going to take a little break. We're on uh, WKXLAM and FM. Uh, streaming live at nhtalkradio.com because it's the 21st century. We're uh, a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Uh, we're, uh, I mean, Stuart, I'm learning great things about you that I never knew. We're going to take a little break uh, for important messages from the folks who are keeping us on the air. Uh, we'll be back after this. Don't go away because Stuart is just warming up about his incredible career. We'll be back after this. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live over the interwebs at nhtalkradio.com for your binge-listening pleasure. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. You can find all the archived Off the Record shows at nhtalkradio.com. All kinds of people, all kinds of issues. And we are having a wonderful time talking to Stuart Shapiro, impresario, entrepreneur, psychedelic cowboy, just a very interesting person, an old friend of mine about whom I am discovering new things with every breath. Stuart, welcome back to Off the Record. Thanks, Paul. Glad so, to be here. So uh, when we left off in the last segment... Uh, we had gone from uh, the dungeons of Athens, Greece, and coming down off uh, some Owsley acid to the midnight music maven, independent music distribution of lots of great rock and roll films with you hanging out with the Sex Pistols and Neil Young and all kinds of folks. And, and, and in your independent music distribution career way back when, at the, at the dawn of time in the early 80s, you came up with an idea for bringing music to the masses, as I recall. Well, well I guess we would, we would say not necessarily music, but music video and music documentary films and right. counterculture. Yeah. Counterculture. So how'd, how'd you get the idea? What went into it? And what became of it? Um, well, you know, so 
I was living uh, in uh, in Manhattan, and uh, you know we're talking about 1980, and, and in Manhattan there was Manhattan Cable, and uh, Manhattan Cable, like you know, was one of the early cable systems in the country. And uh, on Friday and Saturday night, you know, we would come home from partying in New York City. You know, you'd come home at 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock in the morning, and you'd turn on your cable system. And in those days, there, you know, may, may have been five channels on it. But um, they would go off the air at one, 1 o'clock in the morning or 12 o'clock. They would, there would be no programming. And um, as I said earlier, I was doing literally hundreds of movie theaters uh, playing rock and roll films at midnight around the country. And uh, I recognized that there was this dynamic counterculture, or maybe not counterculture, depending on whether you were part of it or not, uh, of um, people at midnight wanting entertainment, wanting rock and roll entertainment, wanting music video entertainment. So um, I figured, why not go pitch Manhattan Cable and see if I could get a late night slot there and as it turned out, that was in the very beginning where um, it was just starting out to be USA Network. And actually, USA Network uh, was playing reruns of women's tennis. I always remember that. I'm like, who the hell wants to watch women's tennis at 1 o'clock in the morning? Right. Especially old, not such good women's tennis. So, right, right, right. Uh, again, I went to my old buddy from Neil Young, uh, Jeff Franklin, who became a partner in Nice Flight. And I said, you know, I'm doing all this business and people are getting high in movie theaters and going home and they got nothing to watch. And I got all these films that I could play. And I know there's a lots of uh, films that I could get. Why don't you go to USA? And he had a friend there and see if they'll give us a two hour slot on Friday night. So they did. They said, we'll give you a three month trial. We went on the air in June of 1981 with a three month trial for a for two hours. I think originally it was two hours on 11 o'clock to 1 o'clock in the morning on Friday, and then they let us go to 11 to 1 on Saturday for the two hours. And, uh, you know, it was the beginning of an eight-year run on USA. Uh, it was uh, obviously, you know, it, it, and I use this as an experience all the time uh, in that, you know, lots of times you can look at a platform and see the opportunities by extending that, you know, to other areas that have, you know, that have the same wannabe but don't have it yet. And, and Night Flight was just really a, a mirror of what was going on in America but not going on on television. So it was really just a question of time. And I was very lucky because, you know, Night Flight went from two hours to four hours, but then in the early days of USA Network and of, and of cable television, they had what they call only one transponder. And the transponder is the satellite transponder that, uh, that sends the, the video back down to the different cable systems. So Nightflight actually went on the air in uh, L.A. at 8 o'clock and, and, and not at 11 o'clock. And it went on for four hours. And then they gave me the other four hours all night long. So we actually had an eight-hour slot. Hmm. Um, and I was very free to do what I wanted to do and what I wanted to put out. We really had, we had no censorship that was uh, per se. Of course, you know, we weren't like a sex channel or anything like that. We were a rock and roll channel. We were allowed to have F words, but it also allowed me 
that have a very wide palette, which is what Night Flight became known for. It became known as a destination of discovery of music and culture and documentary movies. So, and then, of course, shortly thereafter, MTV started. But MTV was really like, a, you know, a, a pop format, and uh, Night Flight was the thinking man alternative and, uh, and the counterculture. So, you know, before um, MTV ever considered playing reggae, I played reggae. We played heavy metal. We played the new wave. We, we, we played all kinds of genres of, of, of music. And as it turned out, it was really a beacon of, uh, of light and experience to literally millions of people, uh, uh, which I've now discovered, you know, since I've relaunched Nightflight, a whole other uh, understanding of what it was really like then. So you're talking about, you've talked about, you, you just said, relaunched Nightflight. Tell us, tell us how, for those of us who want to go back to relive those halcyon days and 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 my millions of listeners who may not know that that they can go back and either rediscover relive or discover for the first time how do we get night flight now what what have you now that we have the interwebs and the googles and the tubes the cyber tubes out there I'm betting that 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 we can get to night flight again. What what's going on with that? So three years ago, I launched um, Night Flight Plus, and Night Flight Plus is on NightFlightPlus.com. It's also Night Flight on Roku, on Apple TV, on Amazon Fire TV, and um, one of the wonderful um, components, just like you with your radio show, well, an independent. Uh, producer today has the opportunity to build their own network if they have the capacity and the library and stuff. So wh- what happened was I was very lucky. I, I sort of separated from my partner uh, for over 20 some odd years. And then I was really lucky uh, a little more, a little less than 10 years ago, I had a chance to actually buy back all of the library of Night Flight that was accumulated uh, for the eight years it ran on, on the on um, USA in the several years that it went into syndication afterwards, and it's literally thousands of hours of uh, tape. And then I also had all my other library of hundreds of other interviews that I did in the 90s. And um, what happened was in the last few years, um, you know, with Netflix and, and Roku and all of the possibilities of what they call OTT, over-the-top television, which is really Internet um, deliverable, uh, the ability to convert analog and one-inch tape and data tape and all these tapes to digital is now affordable, and it offered, gave me the opportunity to relaunch Night Flight um, as Night Flight Plus as a subscription channel for $5 a month or $39 a, a year. You have access to the shows that were originally aired, not all of them, but every single week we put up two or three new shows, and there's several hundred shows, and in addition to that, I've acquired all of the kind of really cool uh, documentary and horror films that are not only from the 80s, but are have somewhat of a retro sensibility, so, you know, um, stars like, you know, American Hardcore, New Wave Theater, um, the, the Bowie, and Iggy Pop, and Lou Reed, um, 
and you know there's a, the, the the real basis of everything. So there's several thousand. There's over 1,200 feature films. Brian Eno, uh, Sex Pistols, D.O.A., Devo, um, Bad Brains, Gumby, um, just like really, really, really cool stuff. Uh, Johnny Thunders, endless, endless. Uh, if you are into countercultural music, counterculture uh, documentaries, whether it's uh, music or horror or even some animation, Nightlight is this sort of curated destination and it's um, still um, honoring the original DNA of uh, discovery and curatorial kind of cutting edge. There's nothing quite like Nightflight out there. So folks, Never has been. nightflightplus.com. Do I, did I get it right? Yeah, you did. Yep. Nightflightplus.com, an incredible subscription channel. I've been there. I mean, I'm. it is just there is just wonderful, wonderful stuff that doesn't really exist anywhere else from Stuart Shapiro's mind to the Internet. It's like a plug in, plug yourself into the cosmic switchboard. And, you know, Stuart, before we have a few more minutes and just I, I don't want to miss that you're now not only an impresario and an entrepreneur in lots of different ways that we don't have time to get into all of them here, but you're also now an author. And uh, I've read your book. Um, we're a family, you know, we're a family friendly channel. So uh, uh, the title of the book is A Journey in Blanken Creative Courage. Um, you guys can fill in the blank. A Journey in Creative Cur- Courage uh, by Stuart Shapiro. It's a, the book is like a multimedia experience. Somehow in words and it, it, you have conjured up uh, the uh, just an extraordinary, an extraordinary journey of the mind, soul, and heart that is very hard to describe. Um, what moved you? Where did it all come from? And 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 what are your hopes for the book? So the actual title of the book is "Identify Yourself." but the identify doesn't have a Y at the end. It has an I, so it's sort of like Wi-Fi and um, Internet I. So it's identify yourself a journey in effing creative courage or a journey in creative courage. Mm -hmm. So it's an autobiographical um, sort of small, each chapter is a sort of an anecdotal chapter that's very autobiographical. But being an entrepreneur my whole life, I really always experienced the ups and downs of success and failure and the strange mix that life has a combination of success and failure that are equally together all the time. You can make a great record or a documentary or whatever, and uh, you think it's great and it makes no money, uh, or you it's got creative success or it makes a lot of money and everybody thinks, everybody thinks it's terrible. Or, you know, like a political career, you can have a, you know, an unsuccessful run, but the, the seeds of the unsuccess are the seeds of your next creative life. Yeah. So having been up and down my whole life, I felt it was important to memorialize a state of courage and uh, that you can, that I could leave with people reading it for younger people that are going to experience this. So. It's sort of like today more than ever, you have to be very flexible in your career and 
no matter what happens, you're going to be rejected. And the more creative you are, the bigger the rejection. So conceptually, throughout your life, you have to be able to learn how to take rejection and turn it into positivity and creativity. And, and I just sort of had to write a book with my personal experiences that continually show that I was able to do this and still do it. Here we are, you know, we're still doing it. You and I are still doing it. One of the areas that we love each other the most is we we're both fans of our personal courage to, to get up every morning and believe in ourselves regardless of how we may have gotten beat up the day before. So I, it, was, uh, it took me a long time to write, and uh, I self-published it with a hybrid publisher. Um, and, uh, you know, it's sort of like an accomplishment. And, you know, part of what you and I have always done in our life, Paul, is what we decide to do, we do. So we, regardless of what it is, when you decide you're going to do something, you've got to get it done, you've got to publish it, you've got to make the record, you've got to get it out, no matter what happens. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it was a venture to accomplish that. Amen, my brother. We've been talking to Stuart Shapiro on Off the Record on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the Internet, podcast at Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. Stuart Shapiro, impresario, entrepreneur, Internet entrepreneur, author, all around really brilliant and wonderful guy. I'm very proud to call you my friend. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, and I'm so happy you're my friend, my dear Congressman. (laughs) You are my inspiration. Don't ever forget it. We'll be back with some more Off the Record after this. Don't go away.